prayer today. <laughs> um, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you once again for the opportunity to gather together as sisters in Christ um, around your word. Lord, it's your word that is profitable, not mine, yours. So, Lord, so we ask that you would speak through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in music, of which I know absolutely or almost nothing about, there is such a thing as a melodic line. A melodic line is the succession of notes that constitutes a melody. It and or variations of it typically are repeated multiple times throughout a musical piece. And there are often variations, maybe extra notes added in, little change in timing, etc. But the melodic line is recognizable throughout the entire song and in some ways holds the song together. Well, the melodic line that runs through the letter of 2 Timothy, which holds this whole letter together, is the idea of perseverance, of steadfastness and faithfulness in the midst of tribulation in the midst of difficulty. Our passage this week and next week will continue to carry this melodic line through. As we look at our text today, I want us to see the call for faithfulness in the last days. We not only see the call for faithfulness, but we also see the way in which God is giving us all that we need to be equipped for every good work that he has for his people to do. The letter is directed specifically to Timothy, who lived 2,000 years ago, but it's also directed to us today in our time in history, in our last days. So let's begin looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. We're going to stop right there. Paul is calling Timothy to understanding. He wants him to understand the context in which he is serving and in which he is ministering. Remember, Paul has been in the middle of instructing Timothy to remind those who he has oversight over, whether it's the people in his congregation whether it's the elders who he is entrusting with this good deposit, Timothy is to remind them of all of the things that Paul has been teaching them and not to be led astray by false teachers, by false words, words of irreverent babble is what Paul calls them. But rather, Timothy is to rightly divide the word of truth and those who follow him are to rightly divide the word of truth. Guard the good deposit. So in light of this, in light of this transmission of the truth from generation to generation, it is important to understand you will be doing this in days of difficulty, in days of trouble, in days of tribulation, in days of trial, in days of suffering. You will be transmitting the gospel message to the next generation in the midst of personal suffering, in the midst of corporate suffering. So how does understanding this matter? Why does understanding 
of this truth help us to remain faithful? I think in two ways, understanding the context with which we live and with which we minister helps us to persevere or remain faithful. In one, it protects us against deception. We talk in the text about these people who have a form of godliness coming into households, deceiving people, right? And if we're aware that this is going on, that is alerting us so that we are not one to be deceived. But it also, I think, aligns our expectations with the reality, okay? So many of us have expectations. I'm talking about myself here. Think about your own life. If you're married, think about what your expectation married life would be versus the reality. I don't know, a little bit of a difference, a little bit of a shocker when you wake up six months down the road or a year down the road or seven years down the road, right? The expectation doesn't always lead, uh, reflect the reality. Or children, I thought about this, my expectation of what life was going to be life at, life, like after I had children was nowhere near what the reality was. I don't know why I didn't know that. I mean, I grew up in a family of four, and so I was the oldest, so I would have seen this, but your expectation is, I think it's this, honestly. I think it's like, I'm going to do it better. (laughs) My children are not going to be like this, and my children will not have meltdowns in the grocery store, and my children... The reality was, my children did have meltdowns in the grocery store. I don't know how many grocery carts I left in the standing in the middle of an aisle somewhere to take them out to the car. The... My point being... There's often a huge discrepancy between the expectation of something and the reality. And sometimes when there's that big discrepancy, we find ourselves quitting because we think that the reality is supposed to be the expectation. And so God, in his sovereignty and in his graciousness and kindness to us, tries to bring those together. Let's make the expectation what the reality is. You are going to be ministering. You are going to be suffering. Um, as you in the midst of suffering. So it's important for us to understand the times. And what does he say about that? He says, understand this, that in the last days, there will be times of great difficulty. And what I want us to understand is we are in the last days. And I don't mean this in some sort of prophetic way. I mean this in the sense that the last days arrived the moment Jesus was born. Jesus ushered in the last days. We have been in the last days for 2,000 years. Hebrews 1 tells us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The last days are here, and they have been for 2,000 years thousand years. The last days are the period of time between Jesus's first appearing and his second appearing. The last days are God's last act in his redemption story, those peri- that period of years before he co- comes again and consummates all of creation to himself. We are in the last days. We also need to understand that the last days are difficult days. They're not going to be easy. 
Peter says when he is writing to the letter of um, his letter to the exiles, he says, "Do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you." We are not to be surprised that the days in which we live are difficult days. Jesus told us that in the last days, this period of time, there will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. Nations will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines. There will be earthquakes. Jesus likens the last days to that of labor pain. They grow in frequency and intensity throughout the ages. Then he says in uh, Matthew, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But listen to this, the one who endures. The one who endures. There's that call from Jesus. The same call that Paul is echoing. The one who endures will be saved. To the end will be saved. We are called to be faithful, to continue to proclaim the message of the gospel in a hostile world so that, the text goes on to say, that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come, not before. So do you see how important it is for the people of God to continue to pass on the unadulterated truth of the word of God to each successive generation and throughout the world so that the ends of the earth will know the truth, will hear the gospel, will hear the good news of Jesus and his salvation in its purity, not twisted, but in its purity so that the Lord will return. Jesus' words were true in Paul's day. They continue to be true today. And this is why I find the word of God so amazingly applicable to us all of these years later. We also need to understand that the last days are godless days. And again, remembering that they were godless days for Timothy, and they are godless days for us. Understanding the times in which we live is important in being faithful but it is also very important for us to understand the world in which we live. We need to be aware that the world in which we live is godless. And what is godlessness? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Look with me at verse 2, and I want you to notice something. Godlessness is first of all rooted in distorted love. Note as I read how many times you see the word love, or a variation of the word love in the text. Verse 2 says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, which is without love, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not Loving, good, treacherous, reckless, 
swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I'm going to pause there in the middle of our list to just talk about the fact that at the heart of a godless society is love. But not the love that reflects God. Not the love that comes from God, which is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not arrogant, is not rude, does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice in what is wrong, but rejoices in the truth. No, the love that our world is operating in is a godless love, a distorted love. When God created humanity, when he created man and woman, he created them to love, to reflect his love in the world that he created them. They were ultimately to love God with all of their hearts. God was at the center of love. But when they fell into sin, who became at the center of this new form of love? Self. And when we love self over all things, we get all kinds of sinful behaviors, right? That list of things like pride and arrogance and disobedience and abuse and ungratefulness and unholiness and slander and and a lack of self-control, all of those things flow out of a heart that is self-loving, loving self over all things. And when we love self over all things, we hurt others because God has been displaced and self has been put on the throne. And so everything we do, every decision we make, is intended to self-protect us to make my life better and at cost to somebody else. This is distorted love. This is not the love of God, but this is at the heart of the world in which we live. And this is what we call idolatry. It is, as Paul says in Romans, people have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and now worship the creature themselves rather than the creator. And therefore, Paul tells us in Romans 1, that God has turned them over to all sorts of passions that are dishonorable. And this is the very heart of sin. This is at the very heart of godlessness. This is at the heart of idolatry, distorted love. And this is the world in which we live. So not only is the world operating in distorted love, but they are operating in deceptive religion. Paul has had much to say in both 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. He says it in almost all of his letters, talking about, warning about false teachers and false teaching, irreverent babble and that effect that it has on people. And he continues to drive this, this point home. Look with me at verse 5. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse um, four in the middle of it. Um, in the verse four, he says that people are treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen to this, having the appearance of godliness, 
but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households. Remember in our cultural context today, you know, when I hear creeping into households, I think they're creeping into the house of, you know, just our houses, like my house. They're coming into my house. And when I bring it forward 2,000 years, I think through podcasts, through media, all the ways that, that false teachers are creeping into our households. But I think even more what he's saying is back in that context, the households are where the churches were meeting. So they're creeping into churches with a form of godliness, but denying its power and capturing weak women. We'll talk about this in a second. Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Paul has given us a list of evil people who are living out their distorted love in the, in the culture in all sorts of evil ways. But now he turns his attention to imposters, people who are on the outside and are upon first glance look to be godly. You wouldn't see like abuse perhaps, or you wouldn't see some of the the things that are on that list that we looked at made visible or made apparent in their lives. On the surface, they look good. They sound good. They say Bible words. They talk about things like compassion and justice and all the Bible words that we know. They have a form of godliness, so much so that they are able to look at the words. It says they creep into households, capturing these women who are weak, The word weak there could mean gullible. To be gullible is to be easily deceived. Now, I don't know if Paul has a specific scenario in his mind. Maybe word had gotten to him about a specific situation in a church that was going on where women had been manipulated and captured by false teachers. I know that sometimes in our modern context, we look at this, well, why did he just mention women? And we get very offended by this. Men can be just as gullible as women. We know that. But that's why I think perhaps he had something specific in mind that he was thinking about what came to my mind, actually, to be completely honest, was Eve. Eve in the garden. Eve in her household. And the serpent, the beautiful creation, crept in to the garden, right? And he captured the heart of Eve, offering her knowledge without the truth. So there's a connection here, I think, between what Paul is saying in this letter, all the way going back to the original original false prophet, the original false teacher, the serpent. So these, these men are creeping in, and they're deceiving these women who are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. They're always learning, but they're never able to come to the knowledge of truth. And so the the false teachers, the false religion, this false prophet is somehow looking like the gospel, but it has no power. So what is it that we know already that we've learned about false messages and false prophets? Well, they take God's word and they speak with authority, but they somehow change it, twisting it, 
leaving out portions of it, adding to it. They twist the meanings of it. They don't hold it all together in context. And you need to understand that whenever we do not rightly divide the word of truth, whenever we um, do not teach all of scripture, whenever we leave something out or add something to it, we are stripping the message of the gospel of its power every single time. And you know what that does to people? It leaves them burdened in their sins. It doesn't leave them free. God said through his word that it is the power of the gospel is what sets people free. When people hear the true message that they are deep and dead in their sins and they respond to the truth that God is bringing judgment and they respond in repentance, And believe the gospel and believe and put their faith faith in Jesus Christ, they are freed from their burden of sins. They are set free from their burdens of sins. But what's happening is is that somehow these people that are creeping in are changing the message of the gospel that feeds the women's always wanting to learn and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth, keeping them burdened with their sin, leading, like leaving them in their various past passions. And we're going to see this next week when Paul tells Timothy that in the end times, there will, people will not want to hear the true message of the gospel, but rather they're going to look for teachers who tickle their ears, who tell them what they want to hear. But here's the thing. It's not freeing. It leaves people in their sin. It may sound compassionate on the surface. It may sound loving. I hear this all the time. I hear this all the time coming from pulpits and coming from podcasts. I want to be compassionate. But this compassionate leads to people remaining in their sin, which leads to people to death. It is a form of godliness, but it denies the power that will set these women free. And this is the context with which we live in in our world today. We live in a place, in a world, where religion is pervasive and it is a, re- a counterfeit religion that offers knowledge, but not the knowledge that leads to life. Thirdly, we see in the text that the world in which we live in despises God. Look at verse 8. It says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. These men that are creeping in, these false teachers, these false prophets, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. This world, those who are evildoers and those who are impostors, despise the very God who made them. God made humanity to love him and to glorify him. And in sin, humanity loves and glorifies self and despises God. So these men or these people, men and women, are actively opposing God and his truth. And it's hard for us, I really think, to to wrap our heads around this because, again, they have a form of godliness. 
They're saying God words. They're using our language. But yet they are actively, when they are not proclaiming the whole message of the gospel, they're not proclaiming the whole truth. They are actively opposing God and his truth and his gospel, leading people to death. And they are actively opposing God's servants. So who are Janus and Jambres? This is the only mention we have of them in our scriptures right here. But there is a lot in Jewish tradition that speaks of these two men. Now, I don't know if they were real men or if they became a part of mythology in some way that came to kind of signify or typify a certain type of person. But a couple of the stories throughout Jewish tradition where Janus and Jambres appear is all the way back in, in the days of the um, Exodus when Moses appears in Pharaoh's court and says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And it is... Um, part of Jewish tradition that the two magicians who opposed Moses were Janus and Jambres. Also, in, in Jewish tradition, um, they, they crop up in the golden calf debacle as people who led, them, led the people away from worship of God, true God. So they also appear in the story of Balaam and in his opposition to, um, when he opposed God and brought told the um, kings how to bring cursing down on the people of Israel. So um, he was opposing God and God's people. So they appear there. And the bottom line, Janus and Jambres are synonymous with the idea of anyone who stands in opposition to the purposes of God and to the work of God's true prophets, true leaders. So these men who are creeping into the churches and anyone who is a false prophet, a false teacher, who are deceiving people and leading them away from the truth are Janus and Jambres. That's what the Paul is saying. They are these men. They are men and women who are standing in direct opposition to the purposes of God and the work of God's servants. And that is a sobering reality. What is Timothy called to do with them? He said, avoid these people. Have nothing to do with them. Now, there's a tension in the text this week, and as opposed to the text last week, where, um, they were suppo- where Timothy was being called to um, correct his opponents with gentleness. Do you remember that? So that perhaps they might come to a place of repentance. But there does come a time... Where we need to, God is calling people to stop correcting and avoid. When somebody is directly opposing the work of God and God's servants, you are to avoid them and their teaching. Why? To protect the people under your care, to protect the churches from being led astray from the truth of God's word, literally for a protection of of the people. Everywhere we turn, ladies, everywhere we turn, ever more so now than in any other time in history, that people can creep into our homes and into our churches, false teachers, deceiving people from the truth. I personally fluctuate between anger at this every single time I hear it, 
or see it, or see its effect, or complete discouragement. But Paul reminds Timothy and he reminds us to not be discouraged, to be encouraged because their success is short-lived. Look at verse 9. He says, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. In the story of Pharaoh's court, they looked successful at first. They were able to, ap- to replicate some of the miracles that Moses was performing for them, but only to a point. They could not fully, and they were finally exposed, and their folly was made plain to all. We do not have to lift up, throw up our hands in defeat and discouragement at living life in the midst of godlessness and in the midst of the prevalence of false teachers. We need to be faithful, continuing to proclaim the truth, regardless of what's going on around us. Because even though we saw in our text this week, even though evil people and imposters are going to go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, even though the nations will rage against the Lord and against his anointed, it will only be for a short time. Their success is temporary. And yes, they do succeed for a while, but it is temporary. There will come a day, and even if it's not a day that we get to see, there will come a day when they will be exposed, where their folly will be made plain to all. So be encouraged, don't be discouraged, continue on in faithfulness, proclaiming the true message of the gospel of God that has the power to save. Paul's second encouragement to Timothy begins in verse 10 with the words, you, however, Timothy is not to be discouraged. Timothy is fully prepared and equipped to remain faithful to his calling in the midst of these terrible last days, as are we. Look at verse 10. Paul continues on. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Timothy was an eyewitness to all of these things that Paul had just listed. He says, you, however, Timothy, you know... You followed my teaching. Timothy knows the truth. He knows who God is. He's seen God working through Paul's ministry and through Paul's life. Timothy was trained, prepared well for his moment to fulfill his holy calling in his day and age. And when did Timothy's training start? What does the text tell us? It started from his childhood. Look down at verse 15. How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise through salvation through Jesus Christ. From his earliest moments, Timothy had been taught the sacred writings, the scriptures. His mother and his grandmother poured into his life 
pouring the word of God into his little heart so that he grew up knowing and being wise for salvation. I just love that the sacred writings, the Old Testament scripture for Timothy and for Paul, that was the scripture that they had. We've been given more through the, through the New Testament, but at that time, the scriptures were the Old Testament writings. And yet even the Old Testament writings were enough to make you wise for salvation. We always think of the New Testament as the book that, books that make us wise for salvation. But the Old Testament was enough to make us wise for salvation. You see, the Old Testament doesn't stand alone. The Old Testament isn't just the mean, angry God that's just bringing down judgment. The Old Testament isn't just the law. The Old Testament speaks over and over and over about a God who is gracious and kind, whose steadfast love endures forever. Over and over we are are shown our sinfulness and those who take refuge in in the rock of our salvation are safe. Over and over again, the entire Old Testament. And with the Holy Spirit in us, we can look back at the whole Old Testament and see that Jesus, who is our rock, is our Savior, is all over those pages. The Old Testament proclaims and preaches Christ. Jesus himself said that. When he was walking on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, he took the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and showed them, taught them how he was there and how he was the fulfillment of all these things. So the Old Testament scriptures make you wise for salvation. And Timothy's preparation and training began from his childhood. I love this picture of his mother and grandmother pouring into his little heart. And into his mind, the truths. And I want us to pull from this something so important. The word of God is for children. It is not just for grown-ups. They can understand the word of God. It is enough for a child. And I'm going to tell you, as a 50-plus woman, those passages of scripture that were poured into my heart and my mind as a child are still with me. To this day, I don't even have to practice them anymore, but I know them. Now, I'm trying to memorize the the Psalms. If I stop for like a week, they're gone. But a child, a child's mind absorbs the truth of God's word. It will never leave them. And I look out at this room and I realize that mothers and grandmothers and sisters and aunts are in this room. Do not think that the word of God cannot impact a child's mind. It's not too lofty for them. You see throughout the whole Testament, God calling them to teach their children the word of God. They don't need to have children's stories. You can read your Bible to your kids. 
God made their minds so supple that they would just absorb the truth. I was able to understand the truths as a five-year-old. I can remember. So never despair as a mom or as a grandmom or as an aunt or as a sister or whatever your place in life. Don't ever think that you're not valuable in pouring into the life of a child because you have your children at the most crucial season, the most precious time. The most impactful time can happen when they're a child. And God is using that. God used it in Timothy's life to prepare him to be faithful to death. And that's what he's doing in your home and in your lives as you pour into your children and into your grandchildren. The word of God is for children. All of it. Read it to them. Teach it to them. Have them memorize it. So his preparation began from childhood and continued into his adulthood now with Paul. Paul had invested years of his life. Verse 10 says that you, however, have followed my teaching. Timothy had followed his teaching, had been with him as he traveled. He had been with him for well over a decade, traveling with him. He had firsthand knowledge of of the teachings of Paul. He heard them with his own ears. He co-authored some of the letters that Paul had written. Paul wrote 13 letters. Out of the 13 letters that he wrote, eight of them were either co-authored by Timothy, were to Timothy, or Timothy was mentioned in. So eight out of the 13. Timothy knew what Paul's teachings were because Paul's letters give us the breadth and depth of all of Paul's teaching. So he was intimately acquainted with his teaching. He would have seen Paul's conduct on the day-to-day, on the regular, when he was traveling on the mission field, when he was under house arrest in in Rome the first time. Timothy had seen Paul's conduct. He had seen his aim in life, his purpose in life, and how his whole entire life was lived for the proclamation of the gospel. He had seen Timothy's faith, a faith that, or Paul's faith, a faith that Timothy himself shared. He'd seen Paul's patience in the midst of trials, right? He'd seen his love for, for God and for people. He's seen Paul's steadfastness. He saw Paul's persecutions. He saw his trials. He saw that the Lord rescued him. He was intimately acquainted, and this was the school with which Timothy was being prepared for life in. Through the teaching and the discipleship of Paul, he was well-equipped for his own journey into faithfulness. Paul goes on in verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Once again, he reminded him, All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Not just Paul, not just, you know, like the rock stars of the the faith, but it says everybody, everybody who desires to live a godly life is going to experience persecution. But that kind of causes a question to run into our minds. Are you persecuted? Am I? Here, sitting in, a, in our churches in America where it's, we're free to worship the Lord as, as we would like. 
I mean, we're definitely feeling the heat being turned up a little bit about what we believe, and, and there is antagonism, but we're not persecuted, are we? But this says all. So what do we do with that? And I think we have to go back into church history just a few years, a couple years, to the 5th century. And there's a, um, a man in the 5th century who, who drew a distinction between different types of persecution, different types of martyrdom that I think is really helpful to us. Um, this is St. Jerome is the one who drew this distinction. And he speaks of red martyrs and white martyrs. So I'm going to just be quoting for the next you know, few phrases because this was... Um, It's just good, and I can't reword it in a way that is as good as this. So I'm just going to quote about this idea of red martyrs and white martyrs. And this quote comes from the book, United in Suffering, Martyrdom as a Christian Vocation. So red martyrs or wet martyrs are those who lose their lives for the sake of the name of Jesus. They are red because their own blood has been spilled in their refusal to deny Christ. But white martyrs, or dry martyrs, are those who embrace the cruciform life. You know, I'm stepping out of the quote. You know the life that Jesus called us to? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's the cruciform life. White martyrs are those who embrace the cruciform life in the humdrum of the daily walk. For most of us, our lives do not require the shedding of our own blood. Suffering, he goes on to say, is simply a part of our fallen condition. It is already part of our lives. Afflictions surround us. Loss of loved ones, failing health, the dashed hopes and dreams. When we place our suffering at the foot of the cross, we may be able to point beyond ourselves to the God who redeems our griefs and draws us into the light of his presence. We might in this way serve as white martyrs, signposts and witnesses to Christ. This kind of living into our afflictions can forge in us gifts of patience, hope, compassion, and peace that can witness to Christ in powerful ways. Thus we can give voice to Christ who went to the cross in silence. Suffering is all around us, and it's the training ground in which we live. And two things are happening in the lives of a believer in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our um, difficulties. We are being formed. We are being shaped as we surrender our lives to the sovereignty of God. He is using our suffering to form us into the image of his son. As we submit to God's will and God's sovereignty in areas of our life where we are deeply struggling, we are experiencing deep grief, as we submit to that, giving glory to God in the middle of that, we look like Jesus. Because is that not what he did? Did he not do that? That's what God is doing in the life of a believer. This is what it means to walk the cruciform life, to submit your desires, your longings, under the sovereign will of God and to trust him. But it's also the testing ground. It's the training ground to show what we have learned. 
Do you remember what he said in our text in verse 14? Look down at verse 14. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. He learned it from his mother. We've talked about that already, his grandmother and, and, Tim, and Paul. But I want us to focus on the idea of having learned and firmly believed. In his preparation time, he was being taught. Information was coming in. He's observing Paul. He knows knowledge, but where does he learn it? Where is Timothy learning? Through testing, right? We know this in school. When we go to school, we're being filled, poured into knowledge, information from our books and our teachers' lectures. And we're reading the knowledge, but we don't know what we've learned until we take a test. That exposes what we've learned, and what we have not yet learned, but need to learn. And it's the same that God is doing in us as he's preparing us for faithfulness. We're here as women reading the Bible, studying the Bible, taking in information. We do this on Sundays in church. We're taking in the information about God. But when we walk out of the church is when we begin to be tested. It's in the suffering of life that we learn what we truly know, what we've truly learned and who we truly believe. So verses like this one that we've probably, many of us have learned from childhood, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. We know that. But we haven't learned it until we can trust in the Lord when we don't see him working. When we don't know if he's actually doing anything. This is where we go from knowledge to learning and to believing. Remember how Paul said, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him until that day. When we sit in the place of suffering and we live our lives in the cruciform life where we're submitting ourselves and trusting God, when we can see no evidence of him working, we are in God's school of preparation, of learning, of equipping us to be faithful, of deepening our faith, in him and trust in him as over time we see him come through we see as we look back over our lives the times where we didn't in the moment see it but now we can see that he was with us in the midst of our suffering and our knowledge turns to learning to a solid belief and he is telling timothy this has been happening in you continue to walk in this way. Continue to do this. He is, God is at work equipping and preserving Timothy, and he's doing that through life, but through the word of God. We saw that it was the scriptures that is the, the seedbed for the knowledge that was going to later be tested and, and turn into belief. Look with me at verse 16. He's being equipped for faithfulness through the word of God. Verse 16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, meaning it's valuable. And it's profitable for what? For teaching. Paul and the other apostles' teaching is for us today as scripture. 
We have the Old Testament scripture. We have the New Testament scripture. We are in such a privileged place that we have the whole counsel of the scriptures and that's profitable for us. There's not a place that you can go in the word of God that is not profitable. It's not valuable to be taught. So many times we want to skip over certain parts of scripture. We don't want to spend our time in the book of Numbers. But it's profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof. This is to rebuke. The word of God is like a sword, we are told. It exposes our very hearts. It is like a light that shines into the darkness, revealing the dirt. It's like an x-ray machine that shows where we're broken and need to be fixed. So it's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction. And I love this because this fits right next to reproof beautifully. The Greek word for correction is epeno... I hate this. (laughs) I wish I knew the languages. Epinorthosis. The point that I want you to hear in the middle of that word is ortho. Where we get orthodontia, where we get orthopedics, we get all these words. And what does that word mean? It gives, comes with the idea of straightening what is broken or straightening what is crooked, fixing, healing, spiritual restoration. So the word of God rebukes, exposes what is broken, exposes what needs to be healed, and then at the same time comes in and brings spiritual healing and restoration. And scripture is valuable for training in righteousness or discipline in righteousness. Scripture, the word of God, is the primary source of discipleship and disciplining his people into new patterns of behavior that reflect God's character. The psalmist says he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Those paths of righteousness walk right through this book. These are the paths of righteousness that he is leading us into. And verse 17 says that the man of God, the servant of God, the man or woman of God may be complete or mature, spiritually mature, equipped for every good work. So through the scriptures, God is equipping us and maturing us so that we can be faithful to our holy calling in the midst of suffering, and in the midst of these last days. Remember when we looked at the text last week in chapter 2, verse 21, it said, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Connect that with what he's saying right here. That's how you cleanse yourself. But it's actually not us who are cleansing us. It's God cleansing us through his word. He is cleansing us, making us fit for every good work. It's done through the scripture. How is that even possible? That we can be cleansed through a book like this. Do you have any other book on your shelf that can cleanse you to make you profitable for every good work? No. You know, every single book on my shelf is usually outdated in like, I don't know, five years. They come up with something new. This book is thousands of years old, and it still exactly speaks to the point every single time. How is it possible that this book can cleanse us, can save us? Because this book is God-breathed. It's God-breathed, and that changes everything. 
I wish that I had words. I probably just messed up our... <laughs> I wish that I had words that could somehow adequately express what a wonder it is that this is a God-breathed book. The God who spoke the galaxies into existence breathed onto this book these words. The God who in the Garden of Eden breathed into the nostrils of man, causing him to come alive with his breath, is the same God who breathed this book into existence so that he could breathe life into our nostrils, leading us into spiritual life. It is because this book is God-breathed that it is valuable. No wonder the psalmist proclaimed, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. The word of God is profitable because of who breathed it. He is the all-wise, all-knowing God who is holy, righteous, and truthful. So therefore, this book is holy, righteous, and truthful. He's revealed himself to us here. He reveals what is true and what is good and what is lovely. The word of God is powerful because it comes from the God who is all-powerful. It is powerful to save us. And not just to save us, but to change us as we surrender to the Spirit's work in our lives. The powerful message of the Word of God is able to equip us and change us in days of suffering, just as the Word of God was able to equip Paul and Timothy 2,000 years ago. It is just as effective today because the Word of God is eternal. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. It is imperishable, it is unbound, and it is unchanging. It is a solid rock. God is preparing his people for faithfulness in the last days. He is equipping his people for faithfulness in the last days. And he does this by his spirit and through his precious and powerful word. So ladies, continue in what you have learned. Keep learning. Continue in what you have learned and fully believed in these difficult days and be strengthened through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ through the power of his precious word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks for your word. What a gift that is to us. What a treasure it is. Lord, I pray that you would work in us by the power of your spirit through your word, equipping us, enabling us to be faithful, to persevere in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, until the day of your glorious appearing. We give you praise and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.